Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Cara, acne can be tough. Whether your kid is just starting to get breakouts or has been struggling with them for years, there's a great product that can help. Phyla is the ultimate game changer. It tackles acne right at its root cause, rebalancing the skin's bacteria and packing it with probiotic phages. Phyla harnesses the superpowers of probiotics, tiny warriors targeting and wiping out the acne-causing bacteria. In studies, Phyla slashed acne-causing bacteria by a whopping 90%. Phyla doesn't just fix acne you can see. It stops new breakouts in their tracks. It has no harsh chemicals and won't irritate or dry most skin. Phyla's three-step system is like a dermatologist-approved magic potion. Cleanse, apply serum, and moisturize twice a day. As a special treat for our listeners, you can grab 25% off your first order of Phyla. Head over to phylabiotics.com, enter code PUBERTY at checkout, and kickstart your family's journey to acne-free skin. Check out the link in our show notes for quick access. Hi, I'm Cara Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Kroll Bennett. And we are obsessed with flipping puberty positive. Puberty is a stage of life best described as a roller coaster of physical and emotional shifts. It happens to literally every human being on earth. And it shouldn't be cringy. It should feel, you know, pretty comfortable. Which is why we started this podcast and a newsletter and why we film slightly ridiculous but informative social media videos. It's why we have a brand that makes clothes that literally feel so comfortable and why we write books too. Our latest is This Is So Awkward, Modern Puberty Explained. We have built a universe of puberty positivity and it all started with this podcast. We are so happy that you're here. Cara, it is really thrilling for us to have on the podcast this week, Aiden Olson Kennedy, who's a clinical social worker at the LA Gender Center. And he provides clinical care and therapy for trans youth, adults, and their families. But that description doesn't get into how passionate he is about his work and how illuminating this episode is with him. Aiden is a licensed clinical social worker with more than 15 years of experience providing psychotherapy to transgender and non-binary people across the age span. We had the most remarkable conversation with him. It really focuses on names, pronouns, definitions. It's the first step or two into a much bigger conversation that could go lots of different directions, but needed to start here. And we've had so many people, Vanessa, reach out to us over the years asking 
for conversations about this language and understanding what gender is, what all the terminology means, what we are seeing in our society, how it varies from generation to generation in terms of different experiences through gender. So this is our first foray into that conversation. And it was just a remarkable, remarkable back and forth. Really, it was a remarkable listen to Aiden. So we hope you find it useful, helpful, and Aiden will give you lots of language and insights to have these kinds of conversations in your own families and in your own communities. We have heard from so many listeners who are eager to talk to the kids in their lives about gender and gender identity in the quote-unquote right way, in the empathic way, in the supportive way, in the informed way. And yet they feel overwhelmed. They feel terrified of messing up. They are so frightened of inadvertently hurting someone, saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, using the wrong terminology. So you are here as our trusted guide to help everyone listening feel informed and empowered to have these conversations and to support the kids in their lives. And I think the place to start is with some good vocabulary. And I'm not sure, I almost feel like asking you even where to begin with vocabulary is like, I don't even want to, I don't even (laughs) want to lead you there. I want you to start, where's your favorite place to start with the vocabulary? Well, you know, sort of go off of what you just said, because I think that I think that there are multiple starting points based on multiple different variables. And and as a therapist and social worker, I'm going to do the classic. Well, it depends, right? <laughs> so, which is really true. And so I think that it could be helpful for folks to remember that everyone has a gender and everyone has a gender identity. And then it's not just trans or non-binary or gender non-conforming kids or people that have genders or gender identity. And so as parents or professionals are beginning engaging in these conversations, it may be helpful for them to remember that they also have a gender and they also have a gender identity that warrants exploration, that warrants conversation, that warrants being, you know, honored and acknowledged. I think that what I think historically has happened, and this may be still true in different parts of the country and different families and circumstances and situations, was that gender or gender identity was often conflated with sexuality or, you know, gender expression. And so I think that sort of clarifying, like, what is the relationship between those things and is what what is not the relationship, right? And so I think that different folks use different language to describe these things. For me, gender really is an innate sense of identity, an innate sense of not just who am I, but also how other people interpret me when I walk into a room or when your kid walks into a room, right? The, the people generally do a pretty quick scan and that scan is almost always based on clothing, hair length, or the verbal cues of the people around them, right? Which could be pronouns um, and name, but also nicknames is really, really a massive verbal cue that people get. Right. And then, so then what gets attached to that is gender. So when we think about when your kid walks into a room or when you yourself walk into a room, 
what is it that you would like people to see or interact with as it relates to your gender or your gender expression? Typically, when people walk into a room, it is not of urgent importance that people understand our sexuality or sexual orientation or sexual attractions, right? And certainly not for kids and certainly not for prepubertal kids, right? And so thinking about gender as an innate sense of self, people don't always have a language for that. We have to also be, we create a lot of space for people to be like, I'm not sure exactly. I just kind of know like this doesn't feel great or this doesn't feel comfortable and I don't really know why, right? And then so you know, gender expression really is about like, how do I then communicate that identity that I have, which is where some of the things I've already said, clothing and hair and nicknames and pronouns, things like that. that's a way of communicating somebody's gender identity, right, is through that expression. So, you know, when, when a young kid, a prepubertal kid starts talking about their gender, gender identity, and again, remembering that that's the true, that's the case for all kids, all kids are going to start talking about their gender. All kids are going to talk about their gender identity. The response doesn't actually need to be any different for a trans or gender non-conforming or non-binary kid. The response can be like, wow, that's amazing. Thank you so much for telling me that. So let's pause on that for a second. I want to restate what you just said, because it's very important. All kids are going to talk about their gender identity and they always have, yeah. right? It's not a phenomenon. No. And I can, can we go there for a second? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, that what is different is that the language has changed and I think people's awareness has changed and evolved and some terms are antiquated and no longer used. And for different generations, I think that that antiquated or, or the language that has evolved is no longer really relatable to their own memory of their pubertal process like it was called something different or people reacted different and now as a parent you have this young person and your only point of reference maybe is your own experience right and so the language is different but but i think the other thing that is is really different is that information is so much uh, more readily available for parents there's books there's podcasts right there's googling there's websites there's all of these different things and and for certainly the three of us and probably many of the listeners, they didn't have access to those resources. Their parents didn't have access to those resources when they were younger. And so I think that makes a really big difference that for as long as there have been kids, kids have been talking about their gender, but maybe not in as direct ways as kids are today, which is actually tremendously helpful because I think more information creates opportunities for more clarity. So Aiden, we've covered gender identity, which is a person's sense of self within themselves and gender expression is the outward expression of that gender. I know you're not supposed to use the word in the definition of the word, but I'm going to, you know, betray my fourth grade teacher and do that. So that's the outward expression. Can we define a couple more terms for folks? One, I'd love for you to define non-binary gender identity and transgender gender identity. and also talk about where there are places where maybe there's no hard and fast definition, but sort of like a variety of definitions or understandings of certain terminology. Yeah. So non-binary, it can mean a variety of different things. So I'll provide a couple of examples. I'm asking the listeners to remember that even the examples I provide may not accurately fit with their young person or sort of the community of folks they're interacting with. So if you the starting 
understanding non-binary is the rejection of the very notion that there is a binary gender system, right? And so the so the binary gender system is the assumption that there is either only male or female, or only man or woman, or only boy or girl. And non-binary really at the starting place is saying, well, that's that's a false paradigm that doesn't actually exist. And so people's non-binary gender identity can exist outside of that. Somebody can say neither of those things feel right, right? Like neither of those things resonate for me. I exist someplace outside of that that maybe there's not even language for yet. Non-binary can also be an experience that somebody says, well, I feel a little bit masculine or like a boy, but I also feel a little bit feminine or like a girl, right? And so sometimes we use a, as an illustration of non-binary, a single horizontal line where there's boy, man, masculine on one end and like girl, woman, feminine on the other end. And sometimes we'll like plop non-binary in the middle, right? And I get why that's an illustration that can help people conceptualize, but it really actually just reinforces the like the binary. It's like you have left, right, and center. And, and so I think that that can be the truth for some people, but my experience is that most people's non-binary gender identity lives outside of this bipolar point of non-binary. Is it not even a, along that scale? Is it not even like closer to one end or closer to another? Is it actually outside of that scale in like a third dimension? Is that, or it is the scale itself an okay sort of image to use, but just be more flexible in your own mind about where people live on that? My recommendation would be to actually um, not use the line itself. Um, and a lot of tools that people have developed online actually use still a, a line kind of mm-hmm. kind of model. And I think that, that that framework is just makes it much more challenging for people to conceptualize and understand what non-binary is or can be also, right? And so, you know, my wife, who was long before she was my wife, was my mentor, used to talk about thinking about gender is as like a color wheel where there's actually not line designations where like the colors kind of bleed into one another. Mm -hmm. right? And and some people's gender is like over in the lime green area and some people's gender is over in the purple area. Right. And they, and then even that of a spectrum still sort of has this beginning and end. And so if we can think about gender and gender identity as, you know, there's a container, but it, all sort of has potential to bleed into one another. So my purple may mean something different to me than somebody else's purple, right? And and that's the thing about gender is that it is both very simple and very complex at the same time. That's a beautiful way of um, kind of reframing the idea and that sort of a, a visual application of of gender identity. I really like that. Can I ask Aiden the relationship between non-binary and gender fluid? Are those yeah. do you consider those parallel to the, the same term, overlapping terms? Again, they can be for some folks. I have found as I'm working with younger and younger generations, fewer and fewer people using the term gender fluid, but that doesn't mean, you know, I, I live in LA and work in LA mostly, so I want to recognize that, you know, What's happening in other parts of the country is not always reflected of what's happening here in the West Coast. So for me, when I think of non-binary and gender fluid, non-binary to me is more of a description around identity and gender fluid can sometimes be more of a reflection of presentation. 
right? Oh, so, interesting. so but, okay. but again, and I want to be very clear that there are going to potentially be some listeners going to be like, wow, he got that super wrong because these are all very individual experiences that we're trying to capture in these broad umbrella terms, right? But gender fluid, it can be non-binary, but it, it can also be like, for some folks who are gender fluid, maybe a binary model resonates a little bit more for them than non-binary does, right? Mm-hmm. So that was like a non-answer answer. I have a question about how non-binary relates to the use of pronouns, but I feel like I've... Should, should we finish the just the last definition, which is the transgender, and then let's go right there. Yes. Yeah. So transgender has like different origins and different meanings, right? So in its, in its purest form, transgender really means movement from one side to another, right? So it's it's a sense of like, what I've been assigned, what I've been designated is inaccurate or either wholly or partially. And so the other side, which the problem is, is that it reinforces the binary, but like there's some part of the, people can't see the air quote, but air quoting the other side fits better for me. And, and trans really comes from chemistry. It's, it's a medical term that the community has sort of adopted as a way of describing a multitude set of experiences. So for people like myself who identify as like I actually identify as trans and not necessarily transgender, right? That it's it's a description or it's a way of thinking of movement from some starting point to another point that may never end, right? And and so for parents thinking about if you have a if you have a young person or a friend or somebody who's identifying as transgender, I think that the takeaway that you can lean into is that that person's identity in some form is not 100% congruent with the sex that they were designated birth and the assumption of their gender identity related to their designated sex. What it can mean beyond that is quite expansive, but I do think that that's a relatively safe starting point of like, there was some misalignment that this person felt they needed to move the needle away from something towards something that feels more aligned for them. And we're going to talk further about what moving the needle includes. And it's a wide variety of choices and changes and decisions. Before we get there, Aiden, I just want to talk about a term that was used when we were growing up, but is really not used so much anymore, which is the term transsexual. Can you talk about if that's still used and if so, when? And if it's no longer used at all, you know, talk about that. Um, I think that overwhelmingly it's not used. Um, particularly, it's not used and really, uh, quite honestly, should not be used for certainly kids and most definitely pubertal, pre-pubertal kids. The historical relevance of transsexual is that, is that it, it really was an indication um, of how people understood gender to begin with, but also understood transition. And from a historical place, transition was seen only as a process of medically altering somebody's body to arrive at a place where people no longer knew that they had an experience of being designated male or female. Right? Transsexualism mm-hmm. was a reference largely used to imply medical, surgical, irreversible interventions, right? So I think that when we think about certainly the conversation that we're having now is that, well, that's not the conversation we're having now, right? <laughs> we're, we're having a conversation that is like, you know, miles and miles and miles away from whatever people perceive or can sort of conceptualize as an 
ending point, which hopefully we get to doesn't actually exist. There is no ending points, right? And I think that the other piece is, is that it's put too much emphasis on medical interventions and it put too much emphasis on the idea that the only way people could arrive at any sense of validity was if they had had every and all medical intervention that somebody was conceiving for themselves. So to be very direct, transsexualism or transsexuality really was about trans women, people designated male at birth. And it really indicated that somebody had had gender affirming surgery related to their genitals. That's really sort of when we kind of whittle down, like, what was that term used for and what did that mean? It really was a representation because it was used to say, like, oh, this trans woman is as much of a woman as she'll ever be because she no longer has a penis. And what we know now is, my goodness, not only is that not accurate or relevant, but it really misses gobs and gobs of people who fall under that trans or non-binary umbrella. And I feel like one other thing it did was because it used the word sex in the language, you know, there's sex, the genetic sex type of sex. There's the sex you have, there's sex, the noun, there's sex, the verb, right? And this all gets conflated and messy. And one of the places that I think adults, today's adults are struggling is being able to tease apart the sexual orientation piece from the gender identity piece. And nothing that you have said at all up until this point involves sexual orientation because this conversation really isn't about sexual orientation. Can you help people understand how to take the sexual orientation piece of this and put it somewhere, not maybe totally aside, but somewhere where it doesn't get conflated with the gender conversation? I think there was a strong push within the community to say, like, these two things are independent. They run on independent sort of domains within our overall list of identities. But I I think that's not accurate. I think that that was a response of, you know, being misunderstood and and sort of these things put upon trans and non-binary folks. I think that these things do have a relationship with one another, but they do live independently on two different domains of identity. Gender is both something that you experience and it's an innate experience. But also we have to back up and and recognize and realize is that gender is as much assigned to people or designated to people as much as their sex is. And when a baby is born or, you know, sonogram, whatever, like either there's a penis or there's not a penis, which, oh my goodness, there are so many problems with that. So much preference over penises. But as people move through puberty and they move into adolescence and young adulthood, right? There's two things. There's how people are understanding their sexual attraction based on their interpretation of that person's gender. And for trans and non-binary folks, if you're experiencing gender dysphoria, which I hope we get an opportunity to define and describe because it's something I'm very passionate about, that if you have a lot of discomfort or distress about your body in the sense of how it feels, but also how it presents, it is going to impact how you express and experience your sexuality. So, you know, I think that probably to, to further clarify your question, right? Sexuality, and for me, I don't use sexual orientation. So sexuality really is about who am I drawn to? Who am I romantically or emotionally or physically attracted to? It is about me to some degree sharing with some other person or, or people, right? And, and gender is much more around like my experience of myself. 
right? But right. those things have to, they bounce back and forth off of one another as they do again for all people. This is, we're not talking about trans and non-binary people specifically or uniquely. This is the case of all people. Correct. And so it's sort of like looking at the the list of adjectives that someone might use, the bucket of adjectives that someone might pull from to describe themselves, right? And these are in that bucket. These are different types of descriptors that may help describe who you are with a Venn diagram overlap, but it's yeah. not a total overlap. It's just an intersection. If I could add really quick, I yes. think that, that um, sometimes we misunderstand our ability to uh, take cues about what somebody's sexuality is actually based on our understanding or our belief system around gender expression. I think the easiest way to understand that is, is that if we see, and I'm using a collective we, if we see somebody we understand or we think is a, as a boy or even a young man or a man, and we interpret or we read their gender expression as feminine, it's really common for people then to make a leap or an assumption that that person is a gay man, right? And, and so that's where these things get overlapped is, is that we assume people or we see um, a girl it's or a so woman true. where we assume that their, their presentation mm-hmm. is, is or their expression is masculine. We will assume that that person is a lesbian. And that's the other place where things get crossed over for parents of gender non-conforming or non-binary or transgender children, I have heard over and over that when their child expresses gender that is different than what they think or assumed it would be based on their designated sex at birth, parents now very frequently go to sexuality. Oh, I probably have a gay son or I probably have a gay daughter. They're making that sexuality assumption actually based on preconceived notions about what somebody's gender expression should mm-hmm. be based on the designation of gender and designation of sex. And so these things are all connected. And I know, Vanessa, you're going to go right here and I'm going to let you say it because you say it so much more articulately than I do, but I'm going to tee you up. It's this hunger that a lot of adults have to put labels on everything because labels feel clearer. And what I'm hearing from you, Aiden, very, very clearly is the labeling is actually the thing that's shifting a bit that we can talk about these definitions till we're blue in the face. But at the end of the day, like these neat compartments of who someone is and how all of these things interrelate, throwing a name on it doesn't necessarily help anyone in the process. Vanessa, is that where you were going to go? Yeah, I was just going to say so often we hear from parents of pre-pubertal kids, it's like the hardest phrase in the world to say pre-pubertal. I have like, anyways, you will all bear with me. Aiden says it much better than I do. They're like, I don't know. I don't know if my kid is gay. I don't know if my kid is transgender. I don't know if they're just like non-binary. I, I, I'm not sure. And they're like, I want to be supportive, but I don't even know what I can say, what I can't say. So Aiden, I'd love to present you with a scenario as we move into the sort of application of all the terms into people's homes and real life situations. And then if you could walk us through a way or some ways that an adult could handle this situation in a loving and supportive way. So let's say someone's 10-year-old comes home and says, you know what? I don't want to be he, him pronouns anymore. From now on, I want to be they pronouns. Mm-hmm. 
what should come out of the mouth of a loving caregiver? Thank you so much for sharing that information with me. Very, that's, I mean, really, and I think that's the hardest thing ever. I mean, I'm a parent and I find myself like in my head, like, nope, it's a period. That is not a comment. That is a period, right? <laughs> and so what happens I think, for adults is, is they just move too quick. They just move really, really, really fast. And a 10-year-old most likely is not interested in every sentence that is to follow, right? It feels very important to that parent, but it's actually that 10 year old is like, I'm done. I have given you the information that is important to me. And I would like to go play video <laughs> games. Right? I'd like to go outside and do whatever I'm hungry. And, and that parent's like, but, 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 <laughs> right. And so, so that honestly, it, it sounds sort of maybe trite or, or, or not as significant as it feels like the situation warrants. But really, my years of working with parents and my years of working with trans folks, that what I hear over and over and over from trans and non-binary folks is that I wish my parents would have just said, awesome, thank you for sharing with me. And if they didn't know what I was talking about, like, go somewhere else and like get some information and then come back after the fact and say, here's what I learned. Can I check in with you to see how accurate or inaccurate this information is, right? But I want to also, I think it's really important to say that a 10-year-old coming home and saying, um, I want to use they, them pronouns, it doesn't necessarily mean anything beyond this person sort of an exploration and figuring out what's going on for them. And your 10-year-old is probably accessing information that is outside of your home, that is outside of your sort of broader community, that is outside of the school, whether you are giving your child that access or not, your kid is moving into a world where that information is quite accessible. So their process could be like, oh, my friend so-and-so is using they, them. That sounds kind of cool, which is very different than like the contagion theory, which I hope we get into as I said that. Yes, that's exactly what I want to... So that's the other question we get all the time. Like, is it just contagious? Like, are, are they just trying to fit in? Are they following a fad? Like, and how can we think about it in a way that's not, that feels very judgy to me, framing yeah. it in the sort of contagious, it's a fad, it's unvogue. How do we approach that sort of, the fact that kids are exposed to all different kinds of gender identities and gender expressions and are trying to make sense of it without labeling it in this very judgment-laden way. When we think about what we encourage and what I think that as a society and, and as parents, what we really love is we want our kids to be curious. We want our kids to be knowledge seekers, right? We send our kids to school theoretically to be curious and knowledge seekers, theoretically, right? And so I think that we really, as parents, and I would encourage listeners to lean into the potential discomfort around kids also getting to be curious about gender and gender identity and gender expression and sexuality, that encouraging curiosity, encourage knowledge seeking really shouldn't have parameters. There really shouldn't be, this is all fine, but not this, because the accidental and most often unintentional message that that young people get when they are sharing this information with their parents is, oh gosh, there's something wrong with this curiosity. There's something wrong with me and it's causing my parent or my parents or my caregivers discomfort. And it feels like I'm getting in trouble, right? And so those are all actually messages we don't want young people to receive. And so there's a couple of things that I think that could be helpful for me to 
to sort of frame as I'm moving into this conversation is that there is a difference between kids who are in curiosity um, as a result of their friend who is using non-binary term- terminology or identifying as transgender. And those kids are like, huh, that's interesting. Never thought about that before, but that seems cool. So I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to use a different name or I'm going to use a different pronoun. Most of those kids are not experiencing distress. Most of those kids are not experiencing incongruency. And most of those kids really are like, oh, well, that's interesting because it's not something that they have been thinking about and feeling, which almost always is very different than kids who are having an experience that is an incongruency of their gender identity and designated sex. And that information, somebody, and it's like a light bulb of like, oh, oh, that's what that is. Or like, wait, can I also do that? Like, it just sounds, as a clinician, it sounds different. It looks different. It feels different, right? And so for trans and non-binary kids, when they are exposed to this information, it's not contagion, right? It's information. It's like, oh, those are the words that help me understand what's been going on. And I think as a parent or as a caregiver, that outside view can be misleading, right? It, it, where your kid maybe hasn't been talking about things or you yourself haven't seen any distress or discomfort from your kid. And your kid is like, actually, this information, actually, this is who I am. Understandably, for a parent, it looks like their kids being influenced by the other trans or non-binary kids at school. Sorry to interrupt you. Is it especially true for kids who are pleasers, for, you know, for kids who the parents are asking questions in a certain way, they want to, so they, they just, you know, this dynamic evolves over time where they do really want to please the adults in their life. Does that play in? For sure. I, I would, I would say that it's less about pleasing their parents and it's more about not causing their parents discomfort or distress, which for Got me, it. there is a difference between those difference. two things. Yeah. I think this is a perfect moment to kind of set a timeline and to contextualize for listeners when a child starts to question or says they want to try on a new pronoun or a new name, can you kind of walk through a typical timeline of events that might occur between that for that light bulb kid? And it's not just, wow, that's cool, but it's really, wow, these are words that kind of articulate for me what I have been feeling and I didn't know. Can you walk through the timeline from there through the next stages of gender evolution, I'll call it? Because as, as a pediatrician, what I hear, and I would imagine this is extraordinarily similar to what you hear as a therapist, there is this assumption that it's like you're stepping on the gas and going 110 miles an hour to an operating room. And I think that it's a great service to everyone who's interested in educating themselves to understand that that is not what this is, right? So can you speak to that a bit? Kara, lately, I have been lying awake at night. I'm physically exhausted, but I can't sleep because my mind is so wired with everything going on between work and my family. So I've added magnesium breakthrough to my nightly routine, and it actually helps calm my mind. It helps me get better sleep. And I wake up feeling better rested. I'm less cranky. And I'm more patient with my family and with you. Oh, I've noticed. 
And it's because unlike other magnesium supplements that might give one or two formulations of magnesium, magnesium breakthrough has seven. That's why you're sleeping so well and waking up refreshed. Now, dietary supplementation is always best, Vanessa. So that means eating your minerals and vitamins is the best way to get them in. But if you can't or you don't get enough, magnesium breakthrough is the way to go. It can also help digestion, though too much helps your digestion too much, which is not a good thing. It can support muscle recovery. So bye-bye, Charlie Horses. And it helps build dense bones, which is especially important for women approaching and in menopause. We have an exclusive offer for our listeners. You can go to buyoptimizers.com slash puberty, B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com slash puberty. And you can use the code PUBERTY10 during checkout to save 10%. That promo code is PUBERTY10 at buyoptimizers.com slash puberty. Your body and brain and family and business partner will thank you. Vanessa, we literally have three minutes to eat lunch every day. I am not joking. And the challenge is how to make it delicious and healthy and still fit into that tiny window. Our answer is Factors Ready to Eat Meals. They have been a godsend. We throw our Factor Meals in the microwave. It takes two minutes and out comes a gorgeous, fresh, never frozen meal. We both love the tamale vegetarian one. It's delish. There's a ton of options every week. There's 60 add-ons, breakfast, snacks, beverages. I love doing the wellness shots with my kids. They think it's hilarious. And I know they're getting vitamins and minerals in their bodies. So get meals on your table or at your desk in two minutes or less. Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, and cleaning. You can customize with flexibility to get as much or as little as you need, and you can press pause or reschedule depending upon your lifestyle. So to order, go to factormeals.com slash puberty50 and use the code puberty50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That code is puberty50 at factormeals.com slash puberty50 to get 50% off your first box, 20% off your next box. And I am going to go do that right now because I need more factor meals in my refrigerator. Cara, my kids love Magic Spoon cereal. And even though it's cereal, they actually love it as a homework snack. The variety pack has four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. And fruity is the favorite flavor in my house. Now, this pack has zero grams of sugar, between 13 and 14 grams of protein, and between four and five grams of net carbs per serving. It's made with wholesome ingredients, no artificial flavors or dyes, and it's high in protein, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. So a great choice, Vanessa. You can go to magicspoon.com slash puberty to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our, you guessed it, promo code puberty at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident you're going to love their product. It's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money. No questions asked. They do not want you to send their cereal back to them. Try a bowl of Magic Spoon cereal today at magicspoon.com slash puberty and use the code puberty to save $5.
Yeah, and it, it's also not generally what the young person wants either. Right. I think that's a really important piece that mm-hmm. they doesn't get named, right? I think that it sort of goes back to my original statement of thank you so much for sharing this information with me, right? They, I get why parents sort of like, oh my gosh, push the gas, if you will, because it often sets up or parents become very fearful. They get very scared because, you know, there's scary statistics out there. There's like all sorts of things that are fear-based. So what is of critical importance is that that young person feels seen, feels heard, and they don't even necessarily have to feel understood in the way that we kind of sometimes think of understanding somebody. But if your young person is like, hey, I really want to use this name or I don't, or I want to use this pronoun or I don't, right? Use that, do that in the very early stages. And I would even argue in the middle stages, there's very few things that are one direction only, right? Mm-hmm. Particularly for prepubertal kids or kids in that sort of pubertal adolescent stage. I know that there can be this sense of like, you know, it's like Pandora's box. Like once this thing happens and it's all out of control and it's all like, you know, green light from there. That's actually not true. That's not accurate. And that's not generally the the pathway that a lot of particularly younger people are interested in, in going on. So, you know, if, we, if a prepubertal kid discloses that their gender is different, as a parent or caregiver, your number one job, your number one responsibility is to receive that kid's information. Your number one job and your number one responsibility as a parent has not shifted from the 20 minutes before you found out this information. Your job is exactly the same as it was before. Make sure my kid feels loved, supported, safe, honored, all of, and my kid is safe when they go to school and my kid is safe when they go to daycare or, or camp or sports or church or synagogue or wherever it is, that the job is exactly the same. And I think if parents can sort of ground themselves in the, wait, I'm pretty sure I already know how to do all of this stuff because I've already been doing it for eight years, 10 years, 13 years, whatever, like do that. Keep doing the thing that you're doing because if your 10-year-old came home and told you, I want to use they, them pronouns, here's what I know, that you've already set up an environment in which your 10-year-old came home to you and said, hey, parent, here's this information, right? And so you've already created an environment that you just have to keep creating. And Aiden, can you share with the listeners why it's so important? Even if you're like, hmm... I don't know. I'm not so sure why people need to suspend their skepticism and use the pronouns or the chosen names that kids are asking us to use. Like what is the sort of deep value to a kid's well-being in honoring their requests about about pronouns and, and names? Yeah, fundamental to all humans is the need to be witnessed and seen. That's a fundamental need. It's a fundamental developmental need that parents have, that kids have. And when parents get caught up in their own emotional relationship with names or pronouns or fear or whatever it is, that the translation to that is that their kid doesn't feel seen, those moments, and I would argue sometimes that that singular moment can alter the trajectory of their kid's development, Mm -hmm. alter the trajectory of that kid's sense of self, right? And what we know from data and, and ample international research is that for kids who have environments where their name and pronoun is honored and respected in a predictable, 
fashion, which doesn't mean that there's no mistakes. It just means there's predictability that that person is going to put effort into it. The better they are with mental health, with in school, right? They're better able to engage and it decreases and slows down the development of gender dysphoria. And so it's of vital importance. And I got to tell you that the name a six-year-old comes up with, it's very likely that like whatever the most popular sort of kids movie is, right? Like I, years ago, I had a parent like, my kid wants me to call them Cinderella and I'm not going to do it, right? And so I had to walk through of like, look, I get what you're saying, right? But also like, let's talk about what's not being talked about. What is your kid going to hear? What is your kid going to feel? And is that in line? Is that congruent with the kind of parent you want to be? For me, taking it away from gender it can be very helpful for parents. Mm. Pulling it back to the emotional, psychological well-being of your child. And if Cinderella is going to keep your kid out of those scary statistics, then call your kid Cinderella, right? And there's a really good likelihood that that kid's going to have natural organic experiences where kids are going to be like, your name is what? Right? As kids do. And that yeah. kid's going to be like, hmm, maybe I should not go with Cinderella. <laughs> but those are like organic exp- experiences that are not coming from, from parents. Aiden, I realized there was a term we didn't define for folks. Can you define the term gender dysphoria for us? Yeah, gender dysphoria in its most simplest form refers to the distress that can develop as a result of the incongruency between one's gender expression, gender identity, and their designated sex at birth. But gender dysphoria also is about social interactions. It is also about legal designations. It occupies all domains of people's lives. There's there's no part of people's lives that are um, immune from the experience of gender dysphoria. What gender dysphoria can look like from a parent or caregiver or clinician's point of view is often anxiety, isolation, depression, um, a lack of interest in engaging in things because gender dysphoria itself doesn't actually have language that belongs only or solely to itself. When we think about like gender dysphoria is like we use terminology like anxiety and depression, right? And so it can be confusing. So there's the medical terminology from the DSM and the ICD, right? But then there's the actual lived experience of dysphoria, which can show up in multitude of ways. But I will say two things that I think are really important is that once gender dysphoria develops and is present in somebody's experience, it necessitates some intervention. And that intervention can be Cinderella, or the right pronoun, I'm not talking about surgical or medical intervention. Gender dysphoria necessitates some intervention that specifically addresses the cause and the source of the dysphoria. Gender dysphoria without a gender-related intervention will not decrease, it will not go away. In fact, it will only move in the direction of more intense and more significant. And I think that's a really important piece for people to recognize So the best case scenario is to do things whenever possible to prevent the development of gender dysphoria, um, because gender dysphoria also, particularly when it is ongoing, it is experienced as trauma. And because it is not a single traumatic event, it is often experienced as complex trauma, which I know is not the points of today's conversation. But I would just encourage parents to think about You know, you would never want your kid exposed to something on a daily basis that's going to feel traumatic to them. And gender dysphoria can be that. 
you know, so many parents and adults who are helping to raise kids are so worried about fragile mental health. And it is extraordinarily important to recognize that untreated, unaddressed gender dysphoria is, you know, then just pulls in all of these other mental health issues that are, I don't want to use the word preventable because I think that sort of makes it a little too black and white, but they are preventable. If you, if you address the underlying issue, you will absolutely be able to help fend off the secondary anxiety and depression and other sort of collateral issues that come along with it. I want to go further down the road, but first I'm going to tie up one little loose thread on the Cinderella conversation. And just to say that what I heard from you very clearly is that for the limit setting adults in a kid's life, giving over to names and pronouns is not letting go of the reins and letting the kid run roughshod around the house and there are no more limits. Like for parents who really feel comfortable with limit setting and sort of an authoritative type of parenting approach where there is some structure and some scaffolding, what I'm not hearing from you is that you have to let all of that go when you honor a child's desire to have a different name or a different pronoun. And in fact, all of that stays very much intact. It's honoring the kid's sense of identity. I think personally, I think those two things get very confused sometimes and parents and adults are nervous that a, a child is dictating the sort of terms of their relationship by doing these things. And and what I'm hearing very clearly and tell me if I've got it wrong is, no, that is not what's going on here at all. This is about honoring someone trying on some new pronouns or a new name and avoiding. And so anything you have to say on that, because then we're going to go further down the road to medicine and surgery for a minute. Yeah. Yes and no. I mean, there's pieces of that that I definitely agree with, but there actually are pieces that, that oh, um, share, I don't, share, share. I don't agree with. I'm really glad you created this opportunity. So, and I, I want to clarify that when I'm now I'm talking about kids who, who are trans or gender non-conforming or non-binary, I'm not talking about the kid that is like, well, that's cool. Let's see how that rolls out. Right. So even though there will be opportunities as a youth moves into puberty, um, where there is prevention opportunities for the development of dysphoria, which I think maybe is possibly where we're going to be going shortly, right? That for that kid, that there is some level of incongruency. It actually is discomfort and it actually is distress. That is the demarcation of like mm-hmm. something's up, right? And that early discomfort, that early distress or incongruency, absolutely, from my perspective, does need some accommodation from parents. Gender dysphoria, early stages and most definitely later stages, it robs people of their ability to fully participate with their total and complete capacity. So for a young person who's experiencing a lot of dysphoria, I'm sort of a visual person, imagine a circle again, right? And if 90% of that pie is being occupied by gender dysphoria, And that leaves that person 10% to do school, to do relationships, to do siblings and fam, all of that stuff. That young person's capacity to follow the uh, business as usual parenting style, actually, it's not going to work. And it's going to cause a ton of friction between Mm -hmm. that young person and the Mm -hmm. parent. 
which is just going to further push that young Such person point. to dangerous levels or dangerous, potentially dangerous levels or places. So what I do think is that is that there absolutely need to be boundaries. But what I use or what I help parents sort of think about is like, when your kid has a headache, when your kid has a toothache, when your kid is not feeling well, right? What are the accommodations and what are the limitations? A doctor's kid doesn't get many accommodations sometimes for a headache or toothache. And I feel so sorry for them. But yes, go right. on with the right, right. non-cobbler example. <laughs> right. So, I mean, I'm not like, if your kid is like full on flu throwing up or everywhere, like they probably totally. have very new expectations, right? But it can be helpful for parents or people who've never experienced gender dysphoria to think about what it would be like to have like a really painful toothache 24 hours a day, how disruptive and intrusive that is. It's just, it's a very distracting. And every time you swallow, every time you eat, every time you drink, it makes it a million times worse, right? Or any human that has chronic pain, this totally is relatable to them, right? And so you're not going to be able to perform at 100%. So from a parenting perspective, I am a big, big fan always, but for trans and non-binary kids, pick your battles. There are things that have to continue to be non-negotiable, but that's not universal. What is non-negotiable in my house probably is not negotiable in either of your houses, right? And so stick true to whatever your family's values are. But for that trans or non-binary kid, even if you don't know they're experiencing dysphoria, as a clinician and as a trans person, please, please hear me. They probably are. And you probably are not telling you about it or they don't have the language themselves, or they're still trying to figure it out. So yes, and no. I think that it can be very helpful to not rely on asking your kid a ton of questions about their gender dysphoria, about their gender. It is a dead end pathway that leads people in all sorts of yucky places. And so I think using different strategies can be helpful. Aiden, we often hear from people, kids and adults, oh, so-and-so has asked to change their pronouns or their name, or they say they're transgender, but I think they're just doing it to get attention. I don't think it's really authentic. And I hear this more often from kids than I do from adults. How do we respond to a statement like that as we are kind of exploring what we should and shouldn't do in the face of this very confusing for many people? area? Well, I've never heard a person question somebody's cisgender gender identity, right? And so when we think about, you know, what are we, what are we comparing it to? What we're comparing it to is what we've decided is the norm. What we've decided is, is the acceptable default gender. And that in this society um, has, and historically has been largely cisgender. And if you are a cisgender person, which maybe let me do a comma here, cisgender means that your identity is congruent with the sex or gender you were designated at birth, right? So it is cis meaning the same, that there's no movement across, right? And so we all operate from our lens and our perspective. And so remembering that trans and non-binary folks are in medicine and in human development, it's just an offshoot of the more typical trajectory. It's not, it's just a variation, just like there are a ton of other variations. Same with sexuality, right? 
like people who are LGBTQIA plus, right? <laughs> um, right, that, that that is an offshoot of the more common developmental trajectory. So there's that piece. But I also really encourage people to consider, if they can, two things. What is the payoff in our society today, right now, for being trans? Not a lot. It's not a particularly easy pathway. There's not a lot of parties being thrown. In fact, there's a lot of hostility. There's a lot of harassment. There's a lot of violence. And there's a lot of people sitting in multiple offices across this country that are very interested in us not existing. And so a young person is not really likely to move into a direction that's going to further other them, that is going to further sort of push them away. Here's the other piece is that if somebody is doing something, and I'm going to pull it out of gender related specifically, right? If a kid is doing something and your perspective is like, they're just doing this for attention, here's my clinical recommendation to you. Give your kid attention. If they're doing something to get attention, they need attention. That's what they're doing, right? And maybe it's not the attention that is directly connected to whatever behavior, whatever they're doing. But what they're doing is like, hey, I need something. There's something missing and I don't really know what to do or how to do it otherwise. And so I think that that's a, a piece for me anyway that, that I think is a really important thing that we forget to address when somebody's doing attention seeking, kids are doing attention seeking behavior is like, yes, right. <laughs> what the important thing is, is that they need attention in some regard, right? The the piece that I think is important is that is that as trans and non-binary people, we are swimming upstream. Yeah. A whole society is set up for cisgender, heterosexual, white men, right? Right. That our society has largely been historically and still largely set up for that. Right. And so if you're anything other than that, and the more identities you occupy that are outside of that paradigm, the more, the stronger that current is downstream. And so your kid, your teenager, your young adult, or your adult child that is trans or non-binary, their whole developmental process in every single day is swimming upstream of that current while seemingly everyone else is just like lounging on their back, sipping, you know, lovely fruity drinks as they're passing you by and you're working and you're working and you're working and you're working and you're not seemingly making a lot of progress. So we think that that can be sort of helpful in the sense of as a cisgender person, as it relates to your gender, you floated downstream, but your kid is not floating downstream. And so if you can sort of create things or make opportunities, if you can get ahead of your kid, right, and you can sort of create a pathway where they don't have to work as hard to swim upstream, which can include names, which can include pronouns, which can include haircuts and different clothing, right? Again, some of those things that are really scary for parents, those are not the first things. As kids get older, that does change. And I think that, you know, whether we talk about that today or in the future, I think that that's an important thing to distinguish, right? But pre kids are like, can you just make some space for me? I want to talk about that just for a minute. And just to define what down the way might look like for some families. Could you just give a, a very brief overview of the path from gender expression and pronouns and clothing and haircuts 
to medicine and then to surgery and maybe just a little bit of background information so that people have a sense of the numbers of kids maybe who progress through these different stages. Yeah. So I, as I, as I share this, I would, I would ask the listeners to not necessarily attach this to your kid or any kid. What I'm thinking about is like, what are the available Mm. gender affirming interventions that one could partake in and what would be a typical movement through those um, interventions, right? So beyond what we've already talked about, which is really connected to social transition, which is the name pronouns and sometimes the change in. So the first medical intervention that is an can be available to people is puberty pubertal suppression medication right which is often in slang referred to as blockers right and pubertal suppression medication and or blockers right really its job is to either at minimum delay if not entirely stop the development of unwanted secondary sex characteristics that are connected to the pubertal process related to that child's gonads, right? Testes or ovaries typically, right? And so that is for somebody who is moving into puberty at that time. That's the first intervention that is an option. No child should ever, under any circumstances, that is receiving treatment for gender dysphoria or the prevention of gender dysphoria, be given pubertal suppression medication prior to puberty. There's just not a situation in which A, that should happen and B, quite honestly, is happening. Yeah. We're not looking to prevent puberty. Yes. Puberty has to happen, right? What we're trying to do is is put a pause on that pubertal Mm -hmm. process. Obviously, the the caveat to that is that kids who are precocious puberty at four, five, six years old, that medical intervention is not related to gender or gender dysphoria. That's a medical intervention that is independent of the conversation I'm having right now, right? So for kids that are now moving into the age group in which pubertal process is pure concordance, then gender affirming hormones, it may be part of that conversation and part of that equation, right? And so when we think about gender affirming hormones, it's really important to recognize that gender affirming hormones are bioidentical, meaning that the body receives and responds and understands externally delivered gender affirming hormones as the same hormones that they are naturally developing, right? And so part of gender affirming care is it's the simplest form is thinking about you're changing levels. You're not introducing something new. You're changing levels. And sometimes parents are like, oh my God, this drug or this foreign substance, it's not a foreign substance at all. Your body's like, oh yeah, I know what that is, right? And you're changing the levels of it. And just again, just because this may not be obvious to everyone, Every person has a little bit or a lot of every sex hormone. So um, it doesn't matter what gender you are, you have estrogen, you have some progesterone and you have testosterone. And to this point, what we're talking about is a recalibration of these different hormones relative to one another. It is not that a person never had any testosterone and suddenly testosterone is being introduced into the body. Right. So yeah, absolutely. Thank clarification. you for that. Yeah. So, you know, as a young person moves into later adolescence um, and for different reasons, that's usually surgical interventions become an option at around the age of 18. There are some exceptions. I don't know that we want to necessarily talk about that, but but then surgical interventions that are to either uh, reduce, eliminate or prevent gender dysphoria become part of the conversation. 
gender affirming surgeries are not happening on 12, 13, 14 year olds. And there is an exception. And I think it's important that I acknowledge that after I finish this other sentence is that when somebody doesn't get the opportunity to have a blocker and they move through a pubertal development that is not congruent, they are not given the same opportunity to enter into adulthood with the same level of experiences as their cisgender peers, right? And so like that is a little heady. So let me like break that down, right? So if you are a trans girl, trans young woman, and you did not get blocked and you went through a testosterone driven puberty, you have a lower voice, you often have bigger hands and bigger feet. You may or may not have an Adam's apple. You may or may not have some facial hair, but you certainly have the potential to develop more facial hair, right? You have a fully developed penis, right? You have all of these things that are absolutely social markers of male. And so as a trans woman, you may be wearing makeup, you may have long hair, you may be on estrogen, you may even be developing breasts, but all of these things that are connected to maleness or masculinity are likely to override your experiences or your expressions of femininity, which means that on a day-to-day basis, you're not going to have those socially congruent and witnessed and mirrored interactions as being a woman. Surgical interventions job or goal or to reduce or remove as many of those things as possible so you can have a gender affirming experience and that's critical to people's mental health and well-being and development sort of the opposite direction uh, for a trans masculine person as well so i think it would it would be irresponsible for me to not acknowledge that there are circumstances and situations in which minors absolutely are getting gender affirming surgeries And this is going to vary in different sort of locations across the country, but there are absolutely circumstances in which a young trans masculine boy who has breast development may get access to gender affirming chest surgery prior to the age of 18. And here's the reason why is that what we absolutely concretely know, particularly for trans masculine kids, is that gender dysphoria increases at a rapid and dangerous pace once somebody starts gender affirming hormones and so asking that person to wait until the age of 18 it is very dangerous for their mental and psychological and emotional health and well-being so somebody's like well like just make them wait until they have testosterone until the age of 18. that's not a reasonable response it's not a reasonable reaction because now we've either created or we have intensified other areas of just dysphoria the goal is to decrease or prevent dysphoria That's the goal of gender-affirming care and access to gender-affirming care. And Aiden, it feels to me, and tell me if this is correct, it feels to me like one of the things that's driving this very heated conversation about the age of surgery is what comes up in terms of detransitioning and this conversation around people who have identified as trans and go down a medical path only to later decide they wish they hadn't gone down that path. And I think it's a good place to take this conversation and maybe land the medical part of this conversation. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So I think that it's an important thing to recognize that the A, people are going to detransition. And I really had distanced myself from the term of detransition for a long time. And I think that's because of what I felt like it implied. What we are having access now, which is amazing and wonderful, are to the voices of detransitioners in the literature and the research. And what detransitioners are saying, nope, I like the term detransition, and please use the term detransition. So I have adapted my language to do just that. 
So what we are seeing now that there is people who are detransitioned that have a voice in this conversation is that people are not detransitioning from a place of regret. People are not detransitioning from a place of like, that was a mistake. People are detransitioning as a process of like further clarity. Oh, because I had access to these things, I realized like I'm still, it's still a little fuzzy. It's still not quite right. And so I need to pivot here, pivot here. And, and so I think that's an important thing that, that detransition is not about regret. That's just not what the numbers and the data are showing us. And the numbers and the data is showing us that out of people who engage in gender affirming medical care, roughly less than 1% and 1% is still actually a high estimation people, of people detransition. What is often misunderstood is that when people stop taking hormones, that they are often categorized or seen as detransitioning. Mm. And that's not the case, right? I've stopped taking hormones at a variety of different times in my life for a variety of different reasons. And none of that had anything to do with me not being a trans man, mm. right? And so we have to look at the experiences from a more neutral position and saying that people are making decisions for a variety of things. Here's the thing though, is that if somebody detransitions and they happen to be way out in the sort of the number margins and their experience is that was a mistake, right? And I want to say those people do exist, but they are not the majority of folks. They too deserve gender affirming care because gender affirming care is to affirm somebody's gender, right? And so as a clinician, as a medical provider, as a parent, all those things, mm -hmm. providing that gender-affirming care. The thing that I think that, that is important, again, I'm going to sort of take this back of like parents who may be feeling anxious or overwhelmed by some of this information is that I have, and I've worked with detransitioners of all ages. I have never met a detransitioner who said, the worst thing that ever happened to me was that my parents listened to me, my parents honored me, my parents respected me, my parents uh, listened and, and attempted to do everything they could to make me feel better and more comfortable in my body. I've never met that person, ever. So even for folks who detransition from a place of like, this wasn't right, what they have universally said to me is, I am so thankful that people listened to me at that time. I'm so thankful I had access to gender affirming care because it was only because of that access that I'm able to be here with further clarity and the opportunity and the stable mental health to be able to continue to fine tune the kind of life that I want. For people who have gender dysphoria who do not get care out of a fear of detransition, we are preventing them from getting to a place in their life that they deserve to be so that they can continue to fine tune what they want their life and body to look like. Aiden, we could spend the rest of the day talking to you and asking you questions. And we won't do that now, but we hope you will come back when there's another opportunity. I think this is so important. You've provided so much framework and insight. We're so grateful for your willingness to sit here and help build a foundation for our listeners on how to think about really complex issues that affect the health and well-being of so many kids in this country and in this world. Um, so thank you for being someone who gives such care and such thought to this really important issue. Yeah. If I could just sort of maybe a takeaway moment for, for parents. Please. Is that, is that 
my primary practice at this point is working with and supporting parents of trans and non-binary kids. And I have an unwavering passion and dedication to parents and caregivers. And um, what I know is often true is that parents and caregivers of trans or non-binary or kids exploring gender is that they feel scared, they feel overwhelmed, and they feel totally isolated on a planet or an island all by themselves. There are countless parent support groups that are available via Zoom and other online mechanisms. And I encourage parents, no matter where they are, however uncomfortable or comfortable they are, to get connected to these parent support groups because it is scary to make parenting decisions when you feel like you're all by yourself. And so please, please seek out those resources and find a therapist whose job is to support parents in developing the skills and tools needed to support their kids, to ensure their kids make it to adulthood with some semblance of health and well-being and stability. And we have some resources and links to some of those websites where you can find um, those support groups on my Umla website under the resources page. We will put some in the show notes. Aiden, you please feel free to share any with us that you would like to point parents to. Um, but I, I think all three of us share the experience of never having met a parent or someone who's raising a child who doesn't just want to see that child happy and safe. And so that is the beauty of this conversation is you have introduced a number of new ways for all of us to help kids, whether they're living under our roofs or not, feel safer and in the long term happier thank you thank you for what you do in this world please please come back yeah happy to come back and thank you for having me we absolutely love hearing your feedback and getting all your questions so anytime you want to be in touch email us at the puberty podcast at gmail.com if you're looking for great puberty products like the Oom um shorts or the Oom um socks or the Oom um bra, you get the theme there, go to myoomla.com. If you want more content, you love what we do on the Puberty Podcast and you want to have us come speak or learn more about our book or subscribe to our amazing newsletter, The Awkward Roller Coaster, go to orderofmagnitude.co. Remember, it's .co because we don't have enough money to buy .com. 